here with you, I spoke to you on the subject of the kingdom of God, and in particular, of the importance of that subject as a topic for your consideration and meditation. And I did so by uh, looking into three things. One was showing how prominent the subject of the kingdom of God is in the teaching of the Bible, in particular in the New Testament. John the Baptist comes preaching the kingdom of God. Jesus comes preaching the kingdom of God when he sends his disciples out. The topic of their uh, preaching is the kingdom of God. When Jesus meets with his disciples at the beginning of the book of Acts and is instructing them and preparing them, he's teaching them the things concerning the kingdom of God. When the disciples are out preaching, when Paul's uh, meeting with disciples at the end of the book of Acts, he's instructing them about the subject of the kingdom of God. So we see it's pervasive throughout. So it must be important just by seeing that. But we also saw the relevance of it to our lives. All the ways in which people are related to the kingdom of God, receiving the kingdom of God, entering the kingdom of God, seeking the kingdom of God, and and so on and so on. I won't repeat all all that again, but you see the relevance of it. I would also add a, a point on that when we think about the importance and the relevance of what we're considering today, the kingdom of God. There could be nothing more important then the consideration of whether or not the Lord Jesus Christ is the Lord and the King of your life or not. Or whether the Lord Jesus Christ is the Lord and the King of this creation, of this earth, and the kingdoms and the institutions of this world, whether or not He has authority and dominion over them. And whether or not you in your life are in submission to his kingship and his dominion. Nothing could be more important than that. And then we consider the third point that I brought forth was the preeminence of it. It's height in terms of importance for your seeking and the pursuit of your life. Because Jesus himself says, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things, speaking of the necessities of our physical life and earthly existence, shall be added unto you. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. So today, building on that, I want to speak to you about the timing of the kingdom of God. The when is God's kingdom. Because if Jesus exhorts you to seek first the kingdom of God, then I believe that that ought to... Put the thought in your mind that the kingdom of God is something that you can seek and find in the here and now. That it is something that is near enough in time and in location that it could be, in fact, sought and found. So if we're considering the subject of when is the kingdom of God then I hope I'll be able to demonstrate to you from God's word that the answer to that, really simplified down, is that the kingdom of God is now. The time is present of when the kingdom of God is. 
Uh, but the question of that may be a little bit more complicated. There may be more shades of um, manifestations of God's kingdom than that that we can look into. And I believe it's helpful in thinking about this question of when is God's kingdom uh, is to think about the different phases or stages in history through which God's kingdom has been manifested. Uh, Because uh, we can start by thinking about God's universal kingdom. That, That is that when we think about the kingdom of God, God reigns over his creation. He created all things. All things belong to him. Of course, by his very nature as being an all-powerful, all-knowing God who created all things and is everywhere present, God rules over his creation. That doesn't have a beginning or an end except in as much as it began when God created all things. That he began to rule over them, but, but it spans all of time. Nor does it have a a limit to its scope, for it covers everything. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Everything belongs to him and he rules over all. So on that level, it seems strange to ask, when is the kingdom of God? Except, Except for this, that when Jesus came preaching the gospel, or when John the Baptist came as the forerunner to Jesus, they were saying the kingdom... Of heaven or the kingdom of God is at hand. It's near. It's about to take place. And so they speak of something that happens in time. We'll look at some verses later where Jesus speaks about the kingdom of God coming with power within the lifetimes of those to whom he was speaking. So there are time statements about it. So how do we make sense of this? Well, consider first God's universal rule over his creation. Psalm 103:19 says, "The Lord hath prepared his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom ruleth over all." We can take great comfort and encouragement knowing that God rules over his creation. It doesn't always seem that way in our day-to-day experiences. Because of the rebellion and sinfulness of mankind, there are often things that that happen that seem like they uh, go against the will and the rule of God. But ultimately, it says God rules over all of his creation. His kingdom ruleth over all. Let's uh, look at Psalm 145, which speaks about God's reign over his creation. Several of these passages are from the Psalms, speaking about God's rule, his reign. Psalm 145, I will extol thee, my God, O King, and I will bless thy name forever and ever. So understanding the kingdom of God is about understanding that God is king. And David, as he writes this psalm of praise to God, David calls God my king. He says, God is my king. David himself was a king. But he was a king under a greater king. The greatest king of all is the Lord himself. He says, every day I will bless thee and I will praise thy name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised and his greatness is unsearchable. 
One generation shall praise thy works to another and shall declare thy mighty acts. I will speak of the glorious honor of thy majesty and of thy wondrous works. And men shall speak of the might of thy terrible acts and I will declare thy greatness. The thing that meditating on and considering and submitting to the kingship of God is to stimulate praise in us. It brings forth praise and glory to God and his mighty works that he works. Bring about the extol, extolling of his glory. He says, men shall speak of the might of thy terrible acts, and I will declare thy greatness. They shall abundantly utter the memory of thy great goodness and shall sing of thy righteousness. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger and of great mercy. The Lord is good to all and his tender mercies are over all his works. All thy works shall praise thee, O Lord, and thy saints shall bless thee. They shall speak of the glory of thy kingdom and talk of thy power to make known to the sons of men his mighty acts and the glorious majesty of his kingdom. Thy kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and thy dominion endureth throughout all generations. So we see the universal extent of the kingdom of God. It always has been. And it always shall be. It's an everlasting kingdom. It's not temporary like the kingdoms of this world. It, it, won't, uh, it, it, it won't rise and fall like the kingdoms of this world. The king who sits upon the throne is not subject to death or weakness or being overthrown by a coup. But he is all powerful and all ruling. And he rules over all of his works. So that kingdom of God is God's rule over his creation that he has made. And it says, The Lord upholdeth all that fall, and raiseth up them that are bowed down. The eyes of all wait upon thee, and thou givest them their meat in due season. Thou openest thy hand, and satisfiest the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his works, and holy in all his works. In all his ways and holy in all his works. The Lord is nigh unto all them that call upon him, to all that call upon him in truth. He will fulfill the desire of them that fear him. He also will hear their cry and will save them. The Lord preserveth all them that love him, but all the wicked will he destroy. My mouth shall speak the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. So consider for a moment the glorious an expansive vision of this psalm. God is set forth as the king over all his creation, which is created with the destined purpose to glorify his name, to lift up his praises. The purpose for all of his works is to sing forth, to shout forth the praises of the God who made them rules over them, provides for them, preserves them, saves them, gives them their food in due season, looks after their needs, cares for them, nourishes them. He is the God that is over all things. So when we consider the kingdom of God, we consider it from that foundation that God's kingship and rule is one over his whole creation. Psalm 24, 1 says, the earth is the Lord's And the fullness thereof, the world, and they that dwell therein. All this world, 
Who does it belong to? It belongs to the God who created all things. And God's rule and God's reign is a benevolent, kind, good reign, just reign over all of his creation. Psalm 47 is another great uh, consideration here for this subject. Oh, clap your hands, all ye people. Shout unto God with the voice of triumph. For the Lord most high is terrible, for he is great king. He is a great king over all the earth. He shall subdue the people under us and the nations under our feet. He shall choose our inheritance for us, the excellency of Jacob, whom he loved. God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. Sing praises to God, sing praises, sing praises unto our king, sing praises. For God is the king of all the earth. Sing ye praises with understanding. God reigneth over the heathen. God sitteth upon the throne of his holiness. The princes of the people are gathered together, even the people of the God of Abraham. For the shields of the earth belong unto God. He is greatly exalted. God is king over all the earth. God, it says, is king. Uh, He reigneth over the heathen. The word the heathen, when you see that in the Old Testament, it's translating the same word as is often translated Gentiles or translated nations. What it refers to is all the nations of the world. In particular, it was used by the people of Israel who were A chosen nation separated from the nations of the world. It was how they referred to all the other nations of the world. It goes back into Genesis itself. When God from the descendants of Noah divided out all the nations of the world. And after the Tower of Babel, he confounded their languages. He gave them different languages and he divided and they became what are called the nations. And God, out of those peoples, he chose Abraham and he set him aside. And he made from his descendants a nation of which we'll look more at in a moment. But that's what it refers to when it talks about the nations or heathen. The word heathen today, we have certain connotation with that. But biblically, basically, that's what it means. It means the nations of the world. And God reigns over them. Now, this was written at a time. It was written at a time when those nations of the world were in a state of darkness. They were in a state of deception. It's something that in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, when the apostles are preaching, they refer to as a time of ignorance. They refer to the nations walking in darkness And that God was now calling all to repentance. But that was written at that time when many of those nations were in darkness. What do I mean by that? They worshiped false gods. They, many of them did not have the knowledge of the true God. They served idols. They uh, often committed great injustices and evils. They were walking in darkness. And yet... Though in spite of their rebellion, yet that does not negate the unchangeable fact that God rules over his creation. But God is manifesting that rule through time in accordance with his plan and his purpose. Not just the Psalms, but also the prophets in many other places. It speaks about the reign of God. Here are a few other scriptures. 
Isaiah 37, 16. O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, that dwellest between the cherubims, thou art the God, even thou alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. Thou hast made heaven and earth. People don't always acknowledge the kingship of God. The kings of the earth in their might and their power and their wealth. They don't always submit to or uh, give a proper acknowledgement of the kingship of God over them. But God is able to humble them. God is able to bring them low and manifest his power. And he did that with one great emperor, one great king that lived in the past and ruled over Babylon and much of the world. And that was Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar, in his uh, account, at the peak of his uh, glory and his power, he looks out at his kingdom and he, sa- and he says, Oh, what, the, what great kingdom that I have made. And God humbles him. He lays him low. And he causes him to lose his mind. And crawl around on the ground and eat grass like an animal and lose his his sanity so that he would be brought to be humbled before the living God. And at the end of his humbling, it records this. Nebuchadnezzar himself writes about what happened and his writing is preserved in the book of the prophet Daniel. He says, and at the end of days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up my eyes unto heaven and my understanding returned unto me. And I blessed the Most High. And I praised and honored Him that liveth forever. Have you ever stopped and considered one of the ways that God is referred to? Is the Most High or the Most High God. What would be the meaning of such a phrase? Consider that in this world that God has created, both among men and among angels and and spiritual beings, there are various powers and forces and principalities and authorities. There are great kings. There are great archangels. There are even uh, those uh, great angelic beings that rebelled against God and oppose him. But among all of the forces, the gods, the powers, the kings of this world, God is the most high. God is above all others. God is above all other powers and authorities and kings and lords. And so he's called the king of kings, the lord of lords. He's called the most high. Nebuchadnezzar, he says, I bless the most high and I praised and honored him that liveth forever, whose dominion is an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom is from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. And he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say unto him, what doest thou? Now, Nebuchadnezzar, here was a man who understood power and authority, probably unlike any, hardly anybody else that's ever lived or lived at his time. He understood by firsthand experience. Here was the same man that could say when somebody did something he didn't like or wouldn't do what he wanted them and commanded them to do in his kingdom. He could say, take that fiery furnace and heat it up to seven times its heat and throw those in that don't obey what I command them to do. He had that kind of power. He had that kind of authority. He could command his soldiers to go and to conquer a city or a, or a nation. He had great wealth and great power. And people did what he said at fear of their very life. And this man 
of great power and authority. He understood that the Most High God, the God who lives forever, has a kingdom and a power and authority that is so far beyond even the greatness of King Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom at its peak of its glory and its wealth and its majesty. The king of kings, none can stay his hand or say unto him, what doest thou? God does his will in heaven and on earth. This is God's everlasting kingdom, his everlasting dominion. It goes right back to the very beginning. God created all things and God delegates the um, the supervision and the administration of his creation to creatures. He created man in his own image, Genesis 1, 26, 28. And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image in the image of God created he him male and female created he them. And God blessed them, and God said unto them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and replenish the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. So who does the dominion of the earth belong to? It belongs to God, who created it, who owns it. The dominion, but God delegates his authority. He administers His rule over his creation through his creatures that he's created. And he created mankind in his own image to exercise dominion over the creation. And that was a good and very good model through which God had created. And without sin, without man's rebellion and sin, that would have been perfectly and uh, justly exercised on this earth so that the earth would have perfectly manifested the glory of God without sin and without rebellion. But of course, man rebelled against God's command and brought sin and death into the world, which is the explanation for the suffering, for the death, for the for the rebellion against God, for the uh, for the evil that takes place in the world. But uh, that was the way that God ordered his creation. And in God's mercy, even though man fell into sin and rebelled against God, God's plan for his creation was not thwarted. God will and is accomplishing the fullness of his plan of just and righteous rule over his creation. And we... uh, We see that manifested in the kingdom of God. And so so to fast forward again back to the time of Jesus when he's coming into the world, the uh, because of sin, because of the shortcoming and uh, of man and the kings of this earth and even natural Israel itself. God is bringing to pass the fulfillment of his plan to justly rule his creation by sending his son into the world. And so they come announcing the kingdom of God is at hand. But now let's let's go back again because we have a very important 
phase in the manifestation of God's kingdom to consider. And that's what we might call the Old Covenant Kingdom. God in his kingdom, uh, he entrusted authority to mankind. Man rebelled against God, sinned against God. And much of the nations of the world were in darkness and in rebellion. At the time of the Tower of Babel, all the peoples of the world were united together, but not in the purpose of serving God and obeying God, but in their own purpose to make a name for themselves and to pursue their own will. They wanted to be kings over themselves. And in, in a sense, this is the nature of the internal struggle of mankind. And and is perhaps an important part of the nature of sin itself is that we want to be our own king. Our sinful nature, we want to rule ourselves. We want to do what we want to do. We want to pursue our own will and our own desires and our own pleasures. We would like to have our own dominion and authority in order to pursue what we desire. In order to have the glory for ourselves. Rather than live in submission to God. We would like to be kings of our own lives. But not on God's terms. On our own terms. Whereas God has provided a a greater thing. For in submission to him he calls his people a kingdom of priests. And so man's rebellion against God, the nations were in rebellion against him. So what did God do? God called Abraham and of his descendants, he made a nation, a people for his praise. And that people in a special and unique way manifested the kingdom of God on earth. See, the nature of the kingdom of God is that the purpose of it was always to be manifested in the earth, on the earth. Among the lives of people like you and me in the here and in the now. So it is not some uh, distant abstract concept that I'm speaking to you about. I'm talking about God's rule intended to be manifested in the earth, in our lives, among us. Something that we can feel and experience and see and live and be part of. That was God's purpose. So how did God do it? In the old covenant, he called the nation of Israel and he made them a kingdom of priests to serve him in this earth and manifest his glory and his justice and his qualities in the world. That's what they were called to. Now, we have the we have the privilege of being able to, in retrospect, see how these things foreshadowed and look forward to the greater fulfillment in the coming of the Messiah's kingdom, the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, which fulfilled those things. But that kingdom existed in a form that foreshadowed what God would do in the old covenant kingdom. And I'll point out that the kingdom of God in the old covenant did not begin with Saul or with David or with Solomon, the first kings of Israel. They were actually a kingdom before Saul ever rose to the throne. How do do we know that? Well, consider this in Exodus 19 verses three through eight. God is. Instructing Moses about the nature of the people of Israel. 
This is, you know, something obviously very distant in time from us. It's a people that lived generations, centuries ago. Um, And it might seem so remote from our lives and what's practical to us today. But consider that what God fulfills among his people now in the church is a fulfillment of what God did in foreshadowing and in prototype back then. In what I'm about to read, God is going to call them a kingdom of priests. But that same language is language that Peter used uses in writing to the disciples of Jesus Christ in the church. He says, you are a royal priesthood. And so we see that what is, uh, is done back here in these ancient times is not something that is remote and distant from us, but it is something that is fulfilled in Jesus Christ and in his disciples. So it is something that we are called to live out in our lives. It is our mission. It is our purpose. And where Israel after the flesh fell short, in Jesus Christ, those things are fulfilled. Uh, Exodus 19, verses, uh, starting in verse 3. And Moses went unto, up unto God, and the Lord called unto him out of the mountain, saying, Thus shalt thou say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, Ye have seen what I did unto the Egyptians, and how I bear you on eagles' wings, and brought you unto myself. Now, therefore, if ye will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine. Okay, so God is saying, if you obey my commandments, you will be a peculiar treasure to me above all people. But he says, for all the earth is mine. So the the whole creation is still God's. God is not limited as just the God of Israel. In fact, God had chosen Israel as a means through which his glory and his rule would be manifested among all the nations. Remember what he said to Abraham, in thee, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God's purpose in calling Israel was not so that God would have as his um, servants and his people one nation. It was that that would be a means through which God would rule over all the nations and manifest his grace and his mercy to all the nations and all people. Jesus had to point this out to the to the Israelites at his time. They didn't understand. They thought that they were uh, they were the only chosen people of God. They thought that God's purpose was for them and for his grace and his mercy to be for them. As a people, but Jesus pointed out God was merciful to Naaman the Syrian and he was merciful to a Gentile widow in the time of uh, Elijah and Elisha. And he was uh, uh, merciful to Rahab and and others. And so Jesus had to point that out. That was God's purpose in calling Israel was not just for Israel, but for the world as a whole. If you understand that. You will understand better the fullness of the mission of Jesus Christ and what he came to fulfill. Because Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of what Israel did not live up to in fulfilling. That's another question we could ask. He says, if ye obey my voice, if ye keep my covenant, did they? 
Did they perfectly fulfill God's covenant with them? No. In fact, in Deuteronomy, in many places, God prophecies exactly what would happen when they fail to obey all the commandments that he had given them. And those things happen just as God foretold. So they fell short. But did God's plan fail? No. It was fulfilled and is being fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He says, the earth, all the earth is mine. He says, and ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. So consider, they were called to be a kingdom of priests. Now Israel itself, within them, they had the Levites who were set apart for the service of God. And among the families of the Levites, there were the descendants of Aaron, the brother of Moses, who were the priesthood. And the priesthood had a special role within Israel that they represented the people before God. They offered the sacrifices for the people and they represented God to the people. They instructed people. They conveyed God's word to the people. That's what the priests did. They were, uh, in a sense, they were a type of mediator between God and man, between God and the nation of Israel. But what was true of the priesthood in Israel, God says in another sense is true of the nation as a whole. They're a kingdom of priests. Well, if they're a kingdom of priests, if they're supposed to serve the living God and in in essence mediate and exemplify God's blessings, to whom are they priests? They were to be an example to the nations of the world. And so it was always God's intention for his heavenly kingdom to be manifested in the earth. And um, and then, of course, I said the kingdom existed before Saul. There, there came a time when the people of Israel said to Samuel, who was uh, a prophet, God's prophet and represented God and taught them at the time. They said, give us a king like all the other nations. And Samuel is displeased and he comes to God and God says to him, he says, he says, do what they say. He says, they have not rejected you, but they've rejected me from reigning over them. So, so God was their king before Saul or David or, or Solomon. They were a kingdom, but God was their king. And they didn't want God to rule over them. They wanted a king like the other nations of the earth. And God had even uh, foretold that this was the case. Uh, even beforehand, I believe in Deuteronomy 17. God in his wisdom and his foreknowledge, he knows what what man will do. Um, Deuteronomy 17, verse 14. When thou art come unto the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee and shall possess it and shall dwell therein and shall say, I will set a king over me like as all the nations that are about me. Thou shalt in any wise set him a king over thee, whom the Lord thy God shall choose. One from among thy brethren shalt thou set king over thee. Thou mayest not set a stranger over thee, which is not thy brother. But he shall not multiply horses to himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt, to the end that he should multiply horses. For as much as the Lord has said unto you, you shall henceforth return no more that way. And then in verse 20, he says of him that... His heart shall not be lifted up above his brethren, 
and that he turn not aside from the commandment to the right hand or the left, to the end that he may prolong his days in his kingdom, he and his children in the midst of Israel. Oh, and in verse 19, this is what it said was required of the king, that he would have a book of the law, and it shall be with him, and he shall read therein all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God, to keep all the words of this law and these statutes to do them. So here's what, so, so God knows they're going to want a king. They're going to want a king like the other nations of the world. But he charges them. He says, when you have a king, first of all, he's going to have a Bible. And he's not going to multiply horses. And he's not going to multiply wives to himself. And he's not going to multiply riches to himself. And he's going to have his Bible. And he's going to read it all the time. And he's going to follow what it says. And do what it says. And he's not going to be lifted up above his brethren. In other words, like he's not going to lord it over his people like the kings of all the earth. Well, of course, we have the history of the kings of Israel and Jerusalem. And we know how far short of these instructions they fell. Some of them were somewhat familiar with the word of God. Many of them obeyed, disobeyed directly the very things God charges them not to do. Even at one time, they completely lose the Bible itself. It, it gets lost. It's somewhere in the, in the temple, I think, buried away. And, and a generation later, they find it, they dig it up, and they're so excited to have found this thing that had been lost for a generation or generations. So we see how far short they fell of these things. But God's purpose will not fail. Though man falls short, though Israel as a nation fell short, yet the fulfillment that would come would accomplish God's purpose of his kingdom in in this world. And that brings us to the new covenant kingdom. The, 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 kingdom, the, the kingdom of Christ, what we might call the messianic kingdom, the kingdom of the Messiah or of the Christ. It's what is most often, perhaps universally, what is referred to in the New Testament when it speaks of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. It is the promised Messiah that would come into the world and rule and reign over his people. And so when, uh, the, when John the Baptist come preaching, it says, In those days came John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In some sense, yes, the kingdom had been there all along, but it was now coming into the fullness of its manifestation, which was God's purpose all along. God's purpose to send his son into the world. It wasn't so much a plan B as if God expected Israel to succeed and then had to come up with another plan. It was God's purpose. God knew that they would fall short. And in Israel and in the calling of Abraham, he foreshadowed the fulfillment in Jesus Christ. In thy seed, he says to Abraham, all the families of the earth may be blessed. That could be taken in different ways. His descendants, the people that came from him, the nation of Israel. Yes, that was their calling. That was their charge. But it wasn't truly fulfilled except in his seed, his descendant. That is the Lord Jesus. In him, all the families of the earth shall be blessed by his coming, by his death, by the shedding of his blood as a 
a sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins by his death and burial and his resurrection, conquering death. By his, by his sending the Spirit to call a people from every nation and tribe and tongue of this world. He, in him, would all the families of the earth be blessed. So the kingdom of God, in its fullness, didn't really come to the earth until the coming of Jesus Christ. Uh, there's, there's so much more that we could look at, which we won't get all to today, but let me just... Uh, get some of the most important facts to consider. I started by saying, I hope I could demonstrate to you the kingdom of God is now. So let's just consider a few time statements. First of all, uh, just logically, if the kingdom of God was at hand, that is about to happen, about to take place 2,000 years ago when Jesus was on earth, that ought to be enough itself to put the thought in our mind that it must have come to be. It must be here now. Unless, uh, unless you could say it is, it is uh, already come to its end, come to its completion. But I believe we can see that that is not the case. Um, in Mark uh, chapter 1, verse 14 to 15, it says, And after John was put in prison, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. So, so one, the kingdom of God was about to take place in the time of Jesus and John the Baptist because they say it's at hand. Two, Jesus also says, that the kingdom of God was near, that it had uh, was near to them. He says, um, when he sends his disciples out, Luke chapter 10, verse 9, he says to heal the sick in the places you go and say to them, the kingdom of God is come nigh unto you. So the kingdom of God was come near to them. It was near in its presence and in its time. Also, Jesus speaks about something of the kingdom of God coming with power. And he, and he gives a very specific, though, though it is a range of time, of a time frame in which the kingdom of God would come in its power to the earth. He says in Matthew 16, verse 28, Verily, verily, I say unto you, there be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Here's a very specific time frame. Uh, here he is. He's speaking to a, a crowd of people. And imagine for a moment if I said that there was an event that was going to happen and that there were some that are here listening to it today who will not die before they see this take place. What would that mean? That it would take place within... 40 years, less maybe, some amount of time. There would be some here still living when this happened. He puts it another, uh, he puts it, uh, another way in Mark 9, 1. He said unto them, Verily I say unto you, there be some of them that stand here, which shall not taste of death till they have seen the kingdom of God come with power. So again, within the lifetimes of his disciples. Now that was 2,000 years ago. So I can deduce logically that that must have taken place by now. The kingdom of God must have come with power. And of course, of course it has. 
Uh, Luke 21, verses 31 to 32. He says, uh, prophesying the judgment that would come upon that generation. He says, so likewise ye, when you see these things come to pass. Now you'll have to go back and look yourself for the context. He's talking about Jerusalem being sieged, being overthrown. Uh, the trials and tribulations that would come upon that generation. There were things that they, the, the disciples themselves were going to observe in their lifetime. He, he talks about Jerusalem being encompassed with armies. And he told his disciples, when you see that happen, flee from Jerusalem. Don't look back. Get out of there because it's going to be destroyed. That's, that happened in about 70 AD. He says, so likewise, when you see these things come to pass, know ye that the kingdom of God is nigh at hand. Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass away till all be fulfilled. And then, of course, Jesus had foretold that the judgment upon the old covenant would happen in the generation in which he lived. Matthew 23, 35 to 36. He says uh, to the... To that generation, he says that upon you may come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth from the blood of righteous Abel unto the blood of Zacharias, son of Berechias, whom he slew between the temple and the altar. Verily, I say unto you, all these things shall come upon that this generation. Matthew twenty three thirty five to 36. So there's an, a necessity that in bringing the new covenant kingdom into its fullness, there must be a judgment upon the old, which Jesus says was going to happen and be in its fulfillment within the lifetime of his disciples, or he says within this generation, putting it in that time frame. So it has come into being. And I'll also say it isn't finished yet. The progress of God's kingdom in this world has not come to its completion. How do I know that? Because he tells us in the Bible when the end is. The end is when the last enemy is destroyed. Christ, after his resurrection, it says he was taken up to heaven and he was seated at the right hand of the Father. He is on his throne. He said while he was on the earth that all power and authority and dominion has been given unto him. So he rules and he reigns now from the highest throne of all. Another reason we know his kingdom is now. He is already seated on that throne and he has been since his ascension. You get discouraged by the events of this world. You get overwhelmed or in despair by the sufferings in your own life. Remember, Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. He rules and he reigns and his reign is an everlasting reign. And, the, and, and he will reign until the last enemy is destroyed. Who's the last enemy? What's the last enemy? Anybody know? Death. He must reign, it says. In 1 Corinthians 15, let me wrap up with this. He says, 
Since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward they are Christ at his coming. Then cometh the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. So that's what is going on. Since he ascended to his throne till now and till the end, he is putting down all rule and all power and all authority. Psalm 110. Sit thou at my right hand until I make thy enemies thy footstool. He is conquering his enemies. For he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. How? The resurrection from the dead, which is what that passage is all about. Paul demonstrating the truth of the resurrection. He will conquer death itself. And notice also this passage it spoke about him delivering up the kingdom to God, even the Father. Uh, remember that the story of creation of man begins with God entrusting dominion and authority to man who unfaithfully uh, rebelled and sinned against God and did not faithfully and justly administer that dominion. But it ends with his son, the last Adam, the second Adam. Faithfully uh, administering God's dominion and authority and then rendering up the kingdom to his heavenly father because he will faithfully and justly and mercifully reign in his kingdom all the days of this creation. And we have the privilege to be part of that because he reigns for he- from heaven, but he reigns through His people here in this earth, working his will. So may our lives be in submission to the kingship of Jesus Christ. May may his rule and his authority and his word have dominion over your life. Thank you for your attention this morning.